Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes that they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Diane Rusin is making the lives of children and families better. Diane is the project manager of the Winnipeg Boldness Project, and she uses her platform to empower and encourage people in our community to live their best lives. What we really need to think about is having brave conversations. And it pulls on different skill sets to have brave conversations, at least for me. If I think I'm going into a place where I want a safe conversation, I think I come at it differently than if I'm going into a place where I need to have a brave conversation. And again, the you know, the women that I've been surrounded by have taught me that. And so when I've been at my most scaredest and most fearfulest and just like shaken in my boots, those women have taught me that is when you draw into your courage. I sat down with Diane Rusin to talk about empowerment, equity, and vulnerability, her strong Indigenous female roots, and what needs to happen to help the children and families in our city that need a hand. Because families know best what their children need for educational success, it's our job to listen and help make it happen. Diane Rusin, thank you for being on the Because and Effect podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Oh, Anin, boujou. <laughs> I'm excited because uh, every time I talk to you, I walk away a little bit inspired. Oh, thank you. <laughs> like, I feel like you, you you remind me to believe in the potential for change a little bit. Mm. And I think that's missing in a lot of activism and a lot of activists' mindsets, you mm. know, just believing in the power of change. Mm. Because I think a lot of youth or people today feel almost like change is too slow, maybe. You know, we can't yeah. really see any change. So yeah. let's talk, well, we'll talk about change in a bit, but to start things off, tell me about the Winnipeg Boldness Project. Tell me about its impetus and, and how it got started and what the mission is. Well, the Winnipeg Boldness Project is a social research and development initiative. So we're, we're very much uh, trying to look into research and development. It's in a particular uh, neighborhood in Winnipeg. So the neighborhood that we call uh, North Point Douglas. And it's um, using a methodology of a social lab, which is a, a, a sort of a tool that uh, is comes under the social innovation banner. And we're really at the basic level, trying to figure out what it is that we can do to make things better for, for children and for babies. So the lens we use is that zero to six uh, age age uh, time frame. But really, when we're looking at what's good for kids, it usually means what's good for families and what's good for communities. So this started five or six years ago, six years ago? Yeah, now? we are now into our seventh year. Seven years. So seven years ago, what was the uh, understanding of the, the family dynamic and, and why did the Winnipeg Boldness Project need to kind of kick off to, to make some change? Well, I think there were a lot of different interested stakeholders in this thing called the Winnipeg Boldness Project. And so the very early discussions, there were, uh, you know, the uh, province of Manitoba, the uh, McConnell Family Foundation, the United Way of Winnipeg, they were all very interested in what they could do to make things better for children. And so um, I think they had done a lot of their statistical analysis and uh, through different kinds of criteria they didn't they did then settle upon uh, the particular neighborhood uh, of the Point Douglas neighborhood in in Winnipeg and so when that decision got made that's when I sort of uh, came into the conversation because that's where I was working prior to boldness I was the executive director of the Mama Wichita Center so I was very much doing uh, lots of work with uh, with children and families and so you know those that group of stakeholders came into the neighborhood to ask the ask the questions about what is it that we can do and and I think most of the those, those three groups um, also have a fundamental belief in working, you know, directly with community and directly with uh, community organizations to, um, to make change. So that's when I came into it. And I think that um, I obviously had been and still am very much a part of a very strong, <laughs> vibrant um, network of relationships in the North End. And, it, and for me, it happens to be mostly Indigenous women. Um, but certainly there is a lot of other women and, and every now and then there's a, there's a fella or two in there. Um, but there's a real strong leadership in Winnipeg's North End. And so I was very much a part of that. And we, uh, as a group, um, 
had decided that we would work with the other partners to make this thing called the Winnipeg Boldness Project go. And so that's sort of how I became the the first person to get hired uh, to, to lead the project. And, and I think we just all were trying to think about how can we make things better for babies? And I feel that like the wisdom in the neighborhood knew how to work with families and knew how to work with children. But I think the thing that was the biggest challenge was all the systemic barriers to thriving and to healthiness. And so for me, the Winnipeg Boldness Project is a social lab. And one of the main tenets of a social lab is that we're trying to affect systemic change. Right. So that change is what I think we're going to talk about a lot today. And my personal frustration and the frustration with my peers that they hear is that we don't see change fast enough. Yes. And we don't see things moving in the direction we want it to move quick enough. So in your experience and throughout your career, have you, is there anything you can point to and be like, yes, there has been change. Like, yes, you might not be able to see it, but there have been incremental changes that we can point to that we can feel good about. Is there ones? I know there's a lot more to do, but can you give us some examples of some changes that have happened that that we can be happy with. Yes. I mean, I share the impatience. I share the frustration and I share, you know, uh, I have my, my up days and my down days and, and, you know, I, um, do think there's not enough change or it isn't going fast enough. Or, um, I can see that the, the, the non change is, can be so destructive to our family. So I share certainly that frustration, um, but then I think um, what you you know your opening comments there about hope. I have worked with Indigenous families my whole life. I've worked you know in the neighborhood for my whole professional career, and it is continues to be the most inspiring and motiv- motivating place to spend my time. And so the families that uh, that I get to interact with and work with. Um, they just, you know, they keep you going, they inspire you, they motivate you. They are, are the reason I have so much hope because I see the hope in them. And, um, and so I, you know, at a personal level, I see a lot of personal connection between our families and with our families. And so that's changed to me. And so when people are, um, connecting and sharing with each other, and then you get to see a lot of the love and the caring and, you know, you get to see people physically aging. I have seen, you know, where there was a baby who is now 10 years old, right? I have seen a person who, when I first came into, you know, contact with a lot of the Indigenous female leadership in the North End, some of them were my age now, you know, and and now they're, um, you know, getting ready to retire. And so I've seen that kind of growth. And so that's the change that's really inspiring. The systemic stuff, I can point to some different examples as well. And there's currently some things happening. But yeah, it never feels like it's enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It seems like baby steps or one step forward, two steps back, and it can get a little bit... Well, what I really, again, what inspires hope and and um, and motivation is that sometimes a little change has such rippling effects mm. and it can either ripple through a system or it can ripple through time. And so there's things that happened 10 years ago that I was a part of that at the time it felt frustrating. And yet I can look back now and there's things happening today as a result of what happened 10 years ago. And it's not always A equals B. It's sometimes more of a meandering connection, but I can see the legacy of some things that are still alive. And and as a matter of fact, I used to work uh, with the Winnipeg Foundation a a while ago on this thing called the Centennial Neighborhood Project. And I can still see, and that was back in 2003, and I can still see some of the legacies of that project alive in the North End still. That's got to feel very good for sure. Yeah. Um, You talked a little bit about knowing what, the solutions are within the community. And I think so much of our problems have stemmed from an outsider trying to think, Mm -hmm. here's how to solve your problem. Here's how we're going to solve your problem for you. And I think part of the shift needs to be asking, how can we help you solve your problems if you need help? So like going to the communities and getting that data and getting the feedback, how important is that for boldness and for, for the work that you do to to understand first what they need before actually um, trying to come with solutions. Well, I think it's it's the key. It's it's the thing. It's the key, and it's the it's the center pin of boldness. And I think it's been the center pin of my whole career is you know really trying to put families in the center. You know, families do know what they need, and so by solutions, that's what I what's what I mean when I say that families know what they need. Um, we don't, as a society or as systems, put 
things together in such a way that it's easy for the families to access what they need. So that's the part where the solution finding gets really complicated because families can't solve all those systemic issues. Mm -hmm. Systems have to solve those systemic issues, right? And so how do we find solutions to, to solve for systemic issues? And I, you know, the, the analogy that I've used a lot that people seem to be able to understand is, you know, the old adage of, um, you know, you teach a person to fish or sorry, you feed, you feed a person a fish and they, they eat for a day. You teach a person to fish and it's a lifetime. Um, we go a little bit further and say, well, what if the water's polluted? <laughs> it really has nothing to do with the fishing skills. It's that there's a larger systemic issue going on here and that the water's polluted. And so that's the issue. It's not the fishing skills. So when we put families at center, they will tell you if they need fishing skills or if the water's polluted. Yeah clean up the water first before you can even have the discussion about yeah. feeding, getting the food in there. Yeah. yeah. So that we don't spend all of our time designing the best fishing rod because <laughs> that's not really the underlying issue. hundred percent. I, in doing some research about, about boldness, I've seen, I saw a lot about the issues with separation of families. Yeah. So whether it means a, a father's out of the picture or a, ba or a child is taken away from their family, that is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing and, and, and discouraging that, right? So how, talk about separation and talk about why that needs to be something that we focus on and making sure we just get families together for step one. To, to solve these things? Well, I mean, I can go to 30,000 feet on that and say that so much of our worldview, mainstream worldview is based on a linear logic model. <laughs> and so linear tends to separate things out. That tends to be why we get siloed kinds of thinking or siloed kinds of systems, because we want to make this one straight line and then we want to divvy it up and give everybody a little part to do. And so I think for personally being an Indigenous woman, um, I think more circular and I think more uh, in a circle and I, and I think more holistically. And so most of our systems are not set up in that fashion. I think mm -hmm. that starts to um, confuse people, some people, if we think about trying to set up that way. And so I think that um, the more we can break down those silos, the better it is for families. Because when families come in the door and say they need help with XYZ, they don't separate it all out. Everything is interconnected for them. And so how do you deal with complexity in a holistic way? I think it's quite simple when you have a holistic uh, worldview and approach, you can deal with complexity and interconnectedness quite easily. If you have a linear, siloed kind of um you know, worldview, I think it's harder to deal with complexity because you need to categorize everything and put it in a box versus understand that it's all just one part of this big connected system. So when the systems are linear and siloed, how what's the what's been the biggest challenge for you to try to um, incorporate a holistic approach when the system doesn't isn't built for that? Well, one example I can give you, and because we're trying to talk about what happens for kids or how what how can we make it better for kids, the community wisdom in the North End, when we went in, into the North End and talked to actual families, because that hardly happens either. But for me, that was a big driver and a key part of, if you want me to be a part of Boldness Project, I insist <laughs> that we will put cent uh, families at center and I will insist that we must go talk to families, even though the data is saying all kinds of things, we still need to go talk to families and, and see what families are saying. So our families immediately said, well, why would you only focus on school readiness? Because that was one of the, the, the original things that Boldness wanted to look at was how do we make things uh, better for kids around school readiness? And so our community right away said, well, why just school? Why wouldn't you just think about the success of kids, period? Mm -hmm. And if we think about zero to six years as very uh, formative years, if we do things in that time frame, that are really good for kids, they will be successful not only in education, but they will be successful in all these other areas. And so as they grow older with that the building blocks and that foundation of success, as they get older, we will have less complications or less challenges with, say, child welfare or justice or lack of health or lack of education or lack of educational achievement and so on and so forth. So the, what becomes kind of challenging is how do you make an investment in that zero to six years 
like if it, you know people like to talk about these ratios of one dollar invested at zero to six how are we then able to make the case that it's going to benefit the child welfare system the justice system you know down the road or if the you health... can't draw that immediate line exactly yeah, and yeah. it's hard to draw that immediate yeah. line right because there's a lot of what ifs and mm-hmm. you can't predict the future and we're not sure but we just know that if we invest early we know we're going to spend less money in child welfare less money in justice less money in the unhealth care system um but it's really hard to make that case with linear thinking and with linear kind of data collection tools or linear uh, research approaches. Well, it's a linear culture, right? So how, yeah. So it's almost part of your job is education on what people don't even realize what's going on because the system has just been so entrenched in, in our ways of thinking and our ways of living that you have to back up you know you have Mm -hmm. to almost set the stage first and say here's what we're doing but here's why we're doing it and here's why it isn't working and it's tough to even come to the table with 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 certain groups because they they just think this is the way it's always been why wouldn't we continue to to do it that way so are you finding that in your role you have to educate a lot more than just kind of advocate I think there's a lot of education and the word I use specifically, there's a lot of translation because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us know this wisdom, like a lot of us who have kids and I doesn't, for me, it, it, it almost doesn't matter what your background is, what your economic background is or what your nationality is or what have you. I think fundamentally we all care about kids. And for those of us that have kids in our lives, you know, whether it's your own kids or you're an auntie or an uncle or, you know, or a close friend. You know, there's no guidebook on how to raise kids and there's no perfect, you know, recipe on how to raise kids. It's very complex to raise successful children, but we do it because we're in relationship with kids and we're learning how to, you know, be emergent and iterative in that relationship with a child, right? So you're just, you're sort of... um, pivoting and and trying to sense and and move in directions that you think is good for that child. Well, it's the same in in what we're doing at Boldness, and it's the same as what's happening in the North End. You know, we're trying to create processes that are a little bit more relationship-based processes that are, which then allows for a lot more emergence and iteration versus just planning, planning, planning all the time. And I think what's key in that relationship-based approach is to put the families at center because families will constantly tell you what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And if we can respond to what they're saying, because most of our systems are not set up for that, but if you can actually respond to what they are saying and you can pivot, um, I think it's way better for the health and wellness outcomes of families. And I think it's way better for systems. I think it's cheaper, <laughs> you know, um, win, and win, so on win. and so forth. Yeah. It seems like um, it, it kind of seems as though every situation is going to be not vastly different. Maybe you could t- maybe you could mm-hmm. shine a light on that. Like, are you seeing trends in the problems that families are not even problems, but just like struggles or, or situations of families? Or is it every single group is completely different or are I- there some themes? So yes, I would say that through this social lab platform, we are prototyping. And I think uh, we are seeing a great deal of diversity out there. And I think it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I feel like as a mainstream society, we have difficulty in dealing with diversity. And, and it's back to that complexity thing again. And because I think mainstream society is sort of, you know, it's this pyramid, right? And so person at the top makes a decision and you want uniform uniformity all the way through so that we're producing the exact same thing at the very end where there's the many people are at the very bottom. And and so we want to produce this. It's how we made Model T Ford cars, right? You know, mm-hmm. you want the same wheel every time. Families are vastly uh, unique and, and different and diverse. And so we can't treat them like producing cars. And so when systems are able to deal with that diversity and complexity and respond to it, families get um, very customized service. The business world talks about customer being right all the time, right? And I think it's the same in social service world. Families will be right every single time. They always know what they need, but we got to figure out how to respond to what they need. And so I think that's where um, the wisdom that is surfacing at the Winnipeg Boldness Project, the community wisdom that's surfacing, there are a number of key themes that I see uh, coming forward that I'm thinking, now how do we build systems based on this? And the idea that our families are asking for, and I think operate based on equity versus equality. Mm -hmm. So it's recognizing that you need half a cup of water and I need a full cup of water. And usually our families are pretty okay with that. Whereas, nope, you and I are both going to get one quarter of a cup of water whether you need it or not, 
right? That's that's equality. Right. Um, assuming we're at the same starting place, assuming that we need the same thing. What do we do with when you and I are at a different starting place and you and I need something different? That's equity work. And I think that that surfaces all the time. I think our, you know, wanting to be more relational versus transactional, things like that surface all the time. Mm -hmm. The idea of diversity versus sameness, you know, there is a time and a place to figure out what's common between us and, and use that as a unifier. I think there's a time and a place to figure out how you and I are diverse and how might we capitalize or how might we benefit from each of our diversity because that can get us far too. But we don't spend as much time on that. Yeah, diversity as strength rather than a hurdle that we need yeah. to overcome. I think maybe it's even, I shouldn't have even framed it like that. Like what trends are you seeing with families? You know, like that's such a kind of a, a weird mindset to have that there would be, you know, like I'm yeah. just assuming everyone from a certain place is, is going to have similar problems, but it really isn't like that. Like it, that's just a kind of a mainstream thought. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I, I can, again, here we go to translation, right? So when you ask me about trends, I can, t I come back to you and say, here's what our families are telling us. Right. And we see our families saying a lot of this. So to me, that's the trend. Mm. Um, and so back to that question you just asked a little bit earlier, I find that I, because this is also a cross um, uh, sector uh, collaborative platform, which is what labs are, that uh, labs necessarily demand to have different folks sitting at the table than who are normally sitting at the table together. So mm -hmm. the cross sector work and, and to do some real deep collaboration. I find myself in so many different conversations. I'll be one day sitting in philanthropy. I'll be one day sitting in government. I'll be sitting in corporate. I'll be sitting right in the middle of crisis in community. I am all over in all of those areas. And I find I'm translating across each of those all the time. Because when we use the word community, even that means something different in every one of those con in every one of those sectors. And so lots of translating. Yeah, so just mediating between different groups with different needs and different ideas of what a solution means. A lot of bridges, right? I find like we use that language a lot. Like I'm, I feel like I'm way out there on the other side of the bridge a lot, you know, and trying to, and because I've chosen to do that and I've chosen to be that person and I've chosen that at this point in my life to be that person who's going to go way on the other side of the bridge, try to have some understanding, try to form some relationships, try to generate, um, you know, some common understandings and common goals and common, you know, and there's a lot of people that do that work. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Well, you, I, yeah, I, I you, you're saying you chose to go down that path, but it seems like you're just a natural at being able to, to, um, connect people in a way. I am very relational. <laughs> I mm -hmm. like relationships and I, and I, and that's a, and I'm genuine about that because I genuinely do like relationships. And so, and I'm always, and I've always my whole life been like a curious little monkey anyway. So I'm always thirsting for, you know, um, knowledge and, and I'm always curious about what's around the corner over there and what's behind that door. And so to go and seek out other people, to go and seek out other worldviews, to seek out other, uh, perspectives is something that I do enjoy. And I do feel driven to it because I, I, I've i spent a lot of time in the North End with people who talk like me and work like me and know exactly what I'm talking about. We all talk the same language. I've spent a lot of time doing that. Um, but that onto itself is not going to solve all these systemic issues that are facing us. We need the cross-sector partners. Like it does for real take all of us to take on a part to be able to make systems change. So I'm, I'm very driven by that too. So I need to know other, you know, sectors in this city. I need to know other people in this city that I don't normally interact with. Yeah. Step one is just making sure everyone is on the same page as, because a lot of times online you see vitriolic things and people are arguing with each other yeah. but they're not even on the same starting point they don't even yeah. have the same basic uh understanding of the of the of the situation yeah but they're still angry at each other somehow so yeah. it seems like step one is to just make us all under all educated on the same level of what's actually happening before you can have a pr proper discourse and actually change someone's mind i do believe that um so I, I'm not a big believer in objectivity. <laughs> I'm a believer in like full on subjectivity. Um, I do think, and so to say, to try to be unbiased, I don't know if I, I really buy that. I feel like we all have our biases. And so the key for me is to be as aware of your biases as you can be. 
And so even when it comes to getting on the same page, I'm aware that my experience and my history and my reality is probably different than yours. And so can I understand yours? Can you understand mine? And that's the same page. It's not that I have to convince mm. you to believe me or, you know, otherwise, or I don't have to convince you of my viewpoint or I'm not trying to, you know, make you uh, say yes to the things I say yes to. Because um, I think that's where we get into the debates and that's where we get into the divides. And then, then you dig in and I dig in and then we're never going to come together in the middle on this, right? So my approach is always, can I understand them, even though I might not agree with them? And can they understand me? And so what avenues, what strategies, what, you know, how do I go about in bridging that understanding? And I feel like you have to be very genuinely um, open to people and you have to genuinely and, and diligently work at relationships to be able to get to a place of having enough respect and trust that we can try to understand each other. I always, you know, everyone's probably been in some kind of a relationship with somebody at one point in their lives, you know, whether it's your partner or your best friend or what have you. And when, and I always say that in the really good relationships, you can mess up so badly they will give you the space, the patience, right? They will like, that's okay. Like, we'll work on this. And you just get a lot of room to mess up when you're in super good, you know, loving, caring, healthy relationships. When you're in bad relationships, like really bad relationships, you can't even look sideways at someone and they will jump all over you and go, why are you looking at me like that? And you're like, I, I, I wasn't looking at you like that, you know, and it can be World War Three just based on a side look when the relationships are bad. So I just take that that out to all of society. So I feel I can be way more effective in anything I'm about to do if I'm in really good relationships. And good relationships stem from uh, mutual vulnerability too. Like you have mm. to be honest and, and connected and respectful, but you have to also bear a little bit of your soul. And I think that's why we became pretty fast friends like over the course of a couple conversations because we were able to understand that we can say what's on our minds with with no fear of judgment or, or, or concern or like, you know, it was a safe space to have a conversation. And yeah. I think that's one of your superpowers is that you just make people comfortable in speaking their mind and asking questions and being able to you know, admit vulnerabilities and, and fears or whatever mm -hmm. it is. So how do you do that to someone who's not, or how do you have a conversation with someone who's untrained in how to be vulnerable or mm. unsure or scared or not willing to be vulnerable? Mm. Well, I feel like I, again, I, I always say I am so completely privileged to have grown up around really strong Indigenous women. And I'm very privileged to continue to be surrounded by really strong Indigenous women. And so I do get a lot of my learnings and teachings from them. And so the idea of vulnerability in my mind is sort of twofold. And it's in, in one, I hope that there needs to be a bit of trust in order for me to expose my vulnerability. I feel like I need a little bit of trust. And so trying to work on building good trust between two people is an important thing to do. And I, and I do work at that. The second piece is more on a personal level for me, personal work. And I, it's taken me a while to come to this place to realize um, that vulnerability actually requires a great deal of strength. Right. I always thought growing up, because the way I've grown up and, you know, all my all my life's history, I had I've had a lot of family violence. I've had a lot of poverty. I've just had a lot of the challenges that, you know, um, many of us have had. And I feel like it's turned me into a very, you know, strong warrior woman with this coat of armor on. And I can be that. Um, but that that's that's a to, to, to show someone that is easier than to show someone vulnerability. And so to show vulnerability takes actually more strength than to show someone my warrior mask. <laughs> Especially because, well, for me, speaking personally, vulnerability was framed as weakness or, yeah. you know, don't yeah, stop crying. You're fine. Like, yep. get up. You're OK. Like, don't. Yeah. And it's taken me a lot of time to deprogram myself. And I think our entire generation is trying to deprogram itself when it comes to that vulnerability because it's not comfortable and we try to avoid anything that's uncomfortable. So therefore, we haven't learned how to actually like interact with someone and be and show that vulnerability. But it's so necessary for society to move forward together. Well, and and just on what you said there, um, I think when I just talked about my upbringing and, and all the challenges that I did face in my in my upbringing, I mean, I, I was surrounded also by a lot of love. And so the strengths of my family really are what carried me through 
through um, and and allowed me to to succeed um, despite all the challenges that I was facing. And when I look into our community now, I can see. Um, you know, we do things. And so I'm running a social lab and we talk about social innovation and we talk about innovating. And there is a concept, two different concepts that I'm really looking at right now. And it's, are we innovating for survival or are we innovating for thrive? Like, you know, alive and thrive. And I think we're doing both. And so understanding, and I would say my, my younger years and the warrior woman thing was about, you know, uh, trying to be stay alive and, and and operating from this survival place whereas to be vulnerable is I feel like more operating from a place of thriving right that I can be healthy enough and strong enough to to show vulnerability to others and a little bit related to that this is another thing I learned from young people actually in Ontario um, I was one going around saying a lot of you know we need to have safe conversations we need to have safe conversations and I've changed my my view on that just a little based on what I was hearing these young people say. And it's yes, it's good to have safe conversations. But some of these really tough conversations that we need to have, aren't really ever going to be fully safe for all of us. So what we really need to think about is having brave conversations. And it pulls on different skill sets to have brave conversations, at least for me. If I think I'm going into a place where I want a safe conversation, I think I come at it differently than if I'm going into a place where I need to have a brave conversation. And again, the you know, the women that I've been surrounded by have taught me that. And so when I've been at my most scaredest and most fearfulest and just like shaken in my boots, those women have taught me that is when you draw into your courage. That is when you bear down and pull on your bravery and you go forward into that situation regardless of your fear because you got to be, that's when you got to be brave. Is there a time that you remember recently having that, that those thoughts like, hey, this is going to be one of those brave ones. So let's, let's buckle up. Well, I think, I mean, I've had lots of those over my life. I do think, you know, right now, the the issue of the day, uh, or sorry, one of the issues that's really uh, alive for us right now is the, you know, what's happening with the land and, the, you know, the, the whether it be pipelines or resources and, you know, particularly in Wet'suwet'en right now is happening. I think that's where all of us need to draw, you know, really have the brave conversations and again I for me it's not about everybody agreeing or you know it can be informational like I would like to get better information out there about this side or that side or the issue or the situation period but I think it's time for us to have some very brave courageous conversations about all kinds of things that are that are happening around that issue. I've seen a lot of what I would consider brave um statements being made of people admitting their ignorance and that's kind of an, a rare thing in mm -hmm. today's social media age of someone being normally it's like hey, this is what i think and this is what it yeah. is and blah 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 but for someone to say like what is happening here i don't know what's going on can someone fill me in yeah. is such a rare and refreshing thing to yeah. see on social media yeah. as compared to the here's what i heard here's why it sucks or here's why i love it and yeah. the, my opinion's right so you know is part of that bravery admitting um, our, our shortcomings a little bit sometimes? Oh, I think so. And it, and it does go back to that vulnerability again of what you just talked about, right? So maybe admitting that I didn't know all that, like, mm. and so that ignorance is like that. I don't want to look foolish, but I didn't know any of that, right? And so admitting you didn't know that. And I think for those of us that are trying to speak our truth, like, again, as an Indigenous person and all of what, what I have grown up with, um, to be able to speak that truth in a way that honors my story, but in a way that doesn't necessarily hurt anyone else. You know, I'm not out to re-traumatize anyone else in, mm -hmm. in telling my story. And so that this is another thing that we hear about, you know, truth and reconciliation and the movement of that, right, is, is that you need the truth before you can have reconciliation. And so people trying to speak their truth you know, it that goes in all kinds of directions and it triggers people and it makes people feel awful and it makes people feel guilty and it makes people feel like, oh my gosh, am I complicit in this? Like it just brings forward all this uncomfort. But when the truth is uncomfortable and when the truth is potentially painful, it, it still trumps that, you know, like a lot of people avoid the truth because they don't want to deal with the pain, right? Yeah. So... Like, how do we, how do we convince people to, you know, like, this is going to be painful? Well, and that's, again, a back to brave conversations. But another teaching that I received from an elder pretty early on in my career was to tell me, I guess maybe keeping things in perspective, 
was to tell me that your greatest challenge will be your biggest teacher. And so I just keep repeating that to myself when I'm going into really big challenges. I go, okay, I'm going to learn out of this. I'm going to learn out of this. I'm going to learn out of this. And I've been through some pretty tough stuff that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, But I can look back and go, yep, I learned a lot through that. (laughs) That's such an important way to frame um, tragedy or trauma, I think, is by saying, but look at who you are because of it or look at what you achieved despite it. Yeah. And just being like, you learned a lot and you're not going to make those mistakes or you won't allow someone to treat you that way or whatever the situation might be. Right. It's really, really compelling. How, how important is this vulnerability and this truth for the general sense of reconciliation for, for indigenous and non, more so non-indigenous people? How, how important is that vulnerability? Well, I think it it is super important. And I do feel like our families in the North End are are vulnerable all the time, <laughs> you know, or, or they're put in situations, sorry, that really surface that vulnerability. And I feel like if if um if systems are creating situations that are constantly requiring our families to be vulnerable, I think we have to be careful with that too. And so you know, our families, I think, are super strong and resilient. And so, and usually they're operating in that place, I I would argue, three quarters of the time, which is great, because that's where that hope and motivation comes from. And I would say only about 25% of the time, are we necessarily in that place of, of you know, really needing all kinds of help, right, and support. Um, and so, so recognizing that we need to have more more of the balance in strength-based opportunities and approaches. That's really what our families are asking for. Like they're not asking to be vulnerable all the time, but systems usually only respond or set up to deal with that vulnerability. So one example I'll give you is listening to a young mom and she was up on a stage. It was for a business thing actually. And she was up on stage and she was up there pitching her business idea and was, and was going into the successes of it a little bit. And man, she broke down on stage at one point and it was un, um, unexpected like I don't think she she herself even expected to go there but she just happened to go there and then it went a little bit further and she talked about being a single mom on welfare and constantly having to go and ask all over to like for for everything everything her whole life and she had kids and so constantly having to ask for stuff and be given stuff because she had to feed her kids and look out for her kids and how awful that made her feel, how how little that made her feel, how weak that made her feel, how, how it made her feel less than. And she was standing on stage to talk about this business idea she had and how she was succeeding in the business idea. And so that, you know, again, that's where she was shining and thriving. But this idea of having to go ask all the time was so, you know, just debilitating for her. Yeah, that's brutal. Um, do you feel optimistic? You have two daughters. Do you feel optimistic about the future and about youth today and how they are coming up and figuring things out? Uh, yes, mostly <laughs> I do. I think I'm an optimistic person. I think I always have been an optimistic person and that, and I give all kinds of credit to my family and especially to my mother because, you know, we were raised with very little, like we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money and, you know, we were indigenous growing up in a mainstream society that really, I think devalued us. And so, um, but my mom, and and so that idea of, you know, innovating to stay alive, I think my mom was the master at that because we had to get through it, right? And so even though there was, a, say, like a lot of family violence in my house, and so, you know, the violence would happen. And the very next day, she'd be like, all right, up we get, one foot in front of the other, you just, you got to carry on. Like, you can't sit around and just you know, let that, let that take you down. You got to keep going. And and I've seen that in my mother, my whole life, <laughs> just, you know, all these challenges face us and she's just a okay, cape up you get and you keep going. Right. So that's that warrior woman thing that I very much a part of. And, and that's, that's, that's who I am now. Um, and so I think that we, we, that's just something that's in my genetics now. Well, it seems like getting up and at them to survive can now be pivoted to get up and at them to thrive, right? Like you're, you're, you're applying those lessons just to stay afloat. Well, that's where I'm hoping for my daughters, right? Is that they can get up and at them to thrive. And I'm hoping that's what happened. I do still have in my, you know, I can feel it right now, even as we're talking about it in, in somewhere in my belly, this fear, because racism is systemic, right? It's institutional and it's systemic. My girls are treaty status. They have treaty cards. 
and that, I'm not bragging about that. <laughs> That's a problem, <laughs> right? The systemic nature of an Indian act, you know, and so on and so forth. So on some level, they're still going to be treated like a second class citizen because of who they are. And, 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 and they can be as resilient as possible. Individual people can be as resilient as possible. But when you're facing all the systemic barriers, like, it's just hard for anybody to get through that. So I have a little bit of fear too, but. Have those questions come up yet from, from their perspectives or situations have come up where they say like, why is it like this? And then you're like, well. Yeah, they do. I mean, they're in school and I think our schools are getting a little bit better about, you know, education and, and, and talking about Canada's full history. And so they see the headlines as just like anybody else. And so they know they're indigenous and they will say, why is this like this? And so I'll give my version of why I think it is this way. And then I will always encourage them. I'm like, well, why don't you ask your teacher or ask your classmates about this? Like, why don't you ask those questions then and see where that conversation takes you? Because some of it's not just straight black and white facts, right? Or some of the factual stuff just isn't in textbooks, right? It's whose version of history are we actually learning in schools? So yeah, <laughs> that's been one of the biggest challenges for me on my own personal sort of reconciliation journey is is the f- anger and the like I felt very angry that I was not lied to, but certainly lied through omission to throughout my entire school. Like once I'm starting to learn learn about what even what residential schools were, I was like, how was this not taught to us? on a daily basis in high school, you know, like, why did I have to learn that on my own? Why is that not a part of the, of the conversation? So it, I, I would be, I would be scared to push my kids out into a world. I don't have kids, but eventually push my kids out into a world where there's still gaps in basic knowledge yeah. and understanding in a, at a systemic level. But I mean, you got to kind of push the baby bird out of the nest eventually, yep. right. And let them fly. Well, and that's where, you know, you, you put a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, peace of mind in their resiliency. But really they shouldn't, it doesn't just have to be about relying on a resiliency, right? Like that's just where we're still kind of at. And so I know my kids are resilient, but they shouldn't have to just operate from that place all the time. That's the work ahead of us still. For sure. It's echoing what Winnie Corn Miller talked about at the um, vital conversation that you hosted a couple weeks ago about just that matriarchal energy and she was so celebratory of her mom and stuff and it was like inspirational made me think of my grandma and just uh, you know it's a cool it's a cool movement now that we're starting to um celebrate and and uh raise up the matriarch as opposed Mm to oppress and 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 uh discount the matriarch do you think that that's going to continue to improve or what, what are you doing to, to try to celebrate that energy instead of? Uh... Well, I feel like we kind of have to, like, even if you look at the environmental movement, right? And so again, I'm Indigenous, I'm Anishinaabe, I, you know, have medicine wheel teachings that I've learned and, and, and I do feel like that's how my brain does actually operate. And that's just how I see the world. And that's how I move in the world. And when I look at medicine wheel teachings and, and just there's so many teachings there, I feel, well, that's the answer, right, to a lot of these environmental challenges that we're facing right now. And so the medicine wheel teaching is is also, for me, a quite obvious answer to issues we have, say, with child welfare or with justice system or what have you, right, with these complex societal challenges that we're trying to deal with right now. I look at medicine wheel teachings and go, well, that would go a long way to helping that along. Um, so I think the the work and the hope is is that there are other knowledge, and I just know that as an Anishinaabe, and so I know there are other knowledge systems out there that have just as much wisdom and beauty in them and answers in them. And so where are those knowledge systems? And I feel like the course that we're on right now, and it feels like the rest of the world is also chiming in at this very moment on climate change and going, yeah, we have to do something and we have to do it now, right? People are starting to realize we got to do something different. So what's the different? That's the opportunity now. What is the different? And so I go to so many other knowledge systems out there could chime in on this and have some hold some of the answers well and knowledge systems that have been succeeding at solving these problems for thousands of years (laughs) right it seems so so easy when you look at on paper oh they've actually lived in harmony with with the land for for forever and all of a sudden now we're out of harmony yeah right let's look to that and, and emulate it a little bit 
Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, so at the end of our time together, All right. we ask the same seven questions to every single guest. We call it the Just Because segment where we just kind of ramble off set seven questions and hopefully we have some fun. You okay, okay to do that? Yep. Okay, great. Question right. one is what's the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Oh, it's just indigenous, indigenous issues. How young were you? Oh, like my whole life. I don't even like this. I've known that I'm brown my whole life and I've interacted in the world and the world has interacted with me based on my skin color my whole life. So I've always known that that's where my passion is. So as a parent, do you prepare? Are you proactive in saying like, this is what you're going to come up against? Or do you wait until that happens and then say, yeah, that's going to probably happen more. Um, the way I go about it with my kids is I try to center Indigenous wisdom as much as possible. I don't necessarily talk about other things that they're going to come up against necessarily. I just go, you are you. And, you know, there's an Indigenous success teaching out there. Who are you? Where do you come from? What is your purpose? And where are you going? Right? Those are sort of four questions that I'm constantly working on with myself and my kids. That's a, be- that's a fundamental thing that uh, every young person should consider at all times Mm -hmm. i think yeah it's beautiful um so question two if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all what's the first thing you could do in support of your current cause or in support of indigenous causes what would you do if you could snap your fingers well it's centering indigenous wisdom i mean i maybe sound like a broken record here but if right now to center indigenous wisdom there are so many say policy barriers to that it's ridiculous so if if all of that could be swept away i think if we could just let Indigenous people do the things they want to do in the way they want to do it without any regulation or anything around it, any constraints, I think we would see transformational shifts. And trust that, that you know, yeah. people are so scared to give up their power or give up their what they're used to or give or up what, what they don't know. Yes. Yeah. yeah or admit yeah, yeah. that they don't know something and saying like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it your way and see how Fear it works. Fear of the unknown. <laughs> Absolutely. Question three, what's the biggest uh, misunderstanding or stigma about the cause right now? I think people don't, mainstream society, I feel, doesn't know enough about strengths-based approaches. And so, for instance, people might look at the North End and think, oh, scary, challenging place. I look at the North End as a beautiful, awesome, like the people that are there, like it, and you, you listen to people who live there, they love it, right? And so where is there ever more light, sh- you know, shining on that strength? Yeah, focusing on the positives instead of the perceived negatives that probably don't even exist. Well, there are po- there are positives and there are negatives, mm-hmm. but we don't shine as much of a light on the positives. It's the doom and gloom that always seems to lead. Yeah, and that, I mean, we could talk about sort of the media approach to how we report things too, and that's a whole nother can yep. of worms for yep. sure. Yep. Um, question four is, what is a time in your life where you had to pivot because a plan just wasn't working out for you? Ooh, um... I think that I, you know, career wise, I've had to make some decisions about do I want to keep doing this? Or do I want to do I want to move and do that? Like, I'm always asking myself, like, what, what gives me lots of life? And then where am I being effective? Mm. And so I recently with boldness, for instance, had to move away from working only with indigenous people. I've been so committed to that. Boldness is a cross sector platform. So I'm working with a lot of non indigenous people as well. Mm As you know, there's still a lot of indigenous people uh, driving boldness, but so that was a pivot. <laughs> like a con- there's conscious pivots and probably unconscious yeah. pivots where you're just like, well, we got to do this way because that's what that's yeah. the feedback we're getting. Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, question five: What's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh well, uh, I've shared a little bit of it already, and there were three. I went to a uh, early on in my career. I went to this um, pan- uh, panel, I guess it was, or speech, and there were three women on stage. It was Josie Hill. Myra Laramie and uh, LaDuke. And so they, I asked them, what, like I said, what advice can you give me? And they, three of them gave me each advice. And I still, to this day, have that advice. So Josie said, um, surround yourself with good family, friends, and support network. And I'm like, yep. Good advice. Myra said, put your tobacco down. And i.e. she meant ceremony, indigenous culture. Like, you know, really look to your culture. And Winona LaDuke said, Keep it in perspective, man. Like there are still women in other parts of this country that are disappearing in the middle of the night, never to be seen again. So compared to that, some of us have it pretty good. (laughs) So keep things in perspective. Just when you think the sky is falling, keep it in perspective. Very important. Very wise women by the sound. Oh, I still to this day. I love it. Uh, So question six, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to her right now? You know, and I sort of talked a little bit about how I grew up. And back then, I didn't know 
that all the challenges or I didn't know that the reason I was being treated the way I was, was because of systemic things and not because of me internally. I grew up feeling like a complete leader in my own home. The minute I walked out the door, I knew I was in different territory and I knew that I was seen as a second class citizen my whole life. And I always felt like that my whole life. And I internalized that. And I think a lot of our Indigenous people do internalize that. I wish I would have known that it's not you. <laughs> it's it's colonization. It's, you know, systemic racism. It's all those other things. Mm-hmm. I would imagine a young person taking that extremely personally. Like, this is, this is on me. Yep. Like, what did I do wrong? Yeah, I'm different. Yeah. I'm less than. I'm a second class. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. brutal. Um, last question. Thank you for... This and every time we've had a conversation, I've loved it. And this is no no exception. Question sh- question seven is what do you want to be remembered for? Oh, you know, I want to be remembered as somebody who I think um, was kind, <laughs> someone who um, worked really hard to make a difference. And um, yeah, someone who was like a part of a community. Are are you right now? Like, do you think? Do you feel like you've you've achieved that? I th- I think I lean into that as much as I can every day. I think I have lots of learning to do, and I can always do better. But those are the things that motivate me, and I'm trying to do those things for sure. Beautiful. Well, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for all the work you're doing in the city and making everywhere you go a better place. I appreciate your time, and yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to Diane Rusin for the conversation, uh, for every conversation we have. Honestly, every time I walk away after our conversations, I feel inspired and and just kind of ready to do my part changing the world in whatever small way I can. And, you know, hopefully we can all work towards bringing a bit more equity to the world, as Diane mentioned. So uh, thank you again for the conversation. You were wonderful as always. And thank you for listening. I know I probably say it every week, but uh, the podcast doesn't exist without you listening to it. So thank you for taking time out of your busy life to spend it with me here. If you know someone who you think would benefit from hearing Diane or any of our previous guests, uh, send them the link. I always appreciate getting new podcast suggestions from friends and family. So, um, you know, you can do the same if you feel like recommending Because and Effect to friends or family or, you know, just shouting it to random people on the street. Anyone who uh, who shares the pod, just know that I appreciate you. Though. So thank you very much. All music on the Because and Effect podcast was produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear his original music at trentonburton.com. Special thank you to Sonny Permolo and Robert Zirk for production assistance on the podcast and to everyone at the Winnipeg Foundation for your continuing support. Because and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation, and you can follow them on social media by searching at WPGFDN. You can search on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you search at Nolan Bicknell, you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter as well. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you same time, same place next week. New episodes every Tuesday at becauseandeffect.org. And remember, be a first-rate version of yourself not a second-rate version of someone else. Bye-bye.